Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com spine. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. November is Lung Cancer Awareness Month, and while rates in, are in steady decline, lung cancer incidents in Pennsylvania are declining at half the national rate. Women are substantially more susceptible to lung cancer than men. We're going to talk about that right off the bat. And few people are aware that screening is usually covered by Medicare and health plans. Joining us to discuss prevention, screening, and treatment of lung cancer are Deborah Brown, Executive Vice President of the American Lung Association of the Mid-Atlantic. Ms. Brown, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having us. Also joining us is Dr. Troy Moritz, a cardiothoracic surgeon with UPMC Pinnacle and a board member of the American American Lung Association of Pennsylvania. Dr. Moritz, welcome to the show as well. Thank you. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. And, of course, uh, you probably notice, and I just put this out there, that uh, UPMC Pinnacle is a sponsor of WITF Smart Talk, and just wanted to let you know that. A statistic that I have to say that... Uh, I just, it really surprised me, and I maybe even shocked me were the numbers. And that was the disparity in lung cancer among men and women. Since 1978, the rates for lung cancer uh, being diagnosed in men has gone down by 27%, but in women, it has gone up 94%. What's behind that statistic? So I, I can shed some light on that. The um, the incidence of women stopping smoking basically happened about a decade or so after men. And so if you look at two graphs side by side, men quit smoking earlier, um, and then so that incidence of lung cancer has trended down. Now, the interesting thing is women, once they quit smoking, you'd expect a parallel trend where, you know, several decades later you would see a reduction in lung cancer. We did see a reduction eventually, but it, then it tabled off. And where you would continue to expect it to decline further, it really hasn't. And that happened a few years ago. And we're still collecting data to see if maybe it's just a lag time effect or whether it eventually will come down. Or is there some other element, you know, that's at play here, whether that's hormonal or environmental or something we just don't understand at this point. But Dr. Moritz, 94 percent, I mean, that's almost double the rate. That would seem to indicate that there are more women smoking if you're going to blame it on smoking. Um, well, the incidence of smoking in women has always been slightly less than the incidence in men, um, but the the incline where women started to smoke is sort of a curve that happened around that time. So women started smoking a few decades before that at a much higher rate, and then as they tabled off, that's why you see that increase over that, that period of time in the like late 70s. Mm -hmm. And something that uh, I, I want to talk about right up front, too, obviously smoking is a big contributor, a big risk factor for lung cancer. Is it the only... Is it the major contributor to lung cancer? Yeah, it's the major contributor. Um, depending on whether you're looking at men or women, it's 90, 95%, or 85, 90, depending on what study you look at. Um, women seemed, never smoker women seem to have more lung cancer than never smoker men, um, so that there is a, a disparity there. Um, but there's other factors such as radon, diesel fume, asbestos, some heavy metals, and a few other things that can cause lung cancer, but at a much, much lower rate than smoking. Are there always environmental factors with lung cancer? Uh, I wouldn't I mean, say. what you just described are all, all environmental factors. Yeah, I wouldn't say always. I mean, we've always attributed smoking. That's the number one reason. But now that we see a lot more of our population not smoking, we're seeing smoke, you know, or lung cancer in, in people that never smoked. And so now we're, we're beginning smarter and smarter about some of these other things that people have been exposed to. You know, whenever we talk about a disease, the question always arises about genetics. Uh, what about genetics and lung cancer? Genetics and lung cancer is is an area that we don't understand very well yet. Um, 
it's not like prostate cancer or colon cancer or breast cancer, or if your parents had it, you know, you have a much higher incidence of having it. Often when we see lung cancer in families, it's an environmental factor that affected the entire family. But there does seem to be patients who have a predisposition, gene mutation, that allows them the ability to get lung cancer maybe quicker, sooner, or more frequently than somebody else who didn't have that mutation. Is that something that can uh, be tested for, I mean, with genetic tests? Not yet. Not yet. So, Deb Brown, let me ask you, uh, I mean, those were some of the, you know, drilling down to the facts on lung cancer. Let's talk uh, broadly at this point. Uh, I mean, this is November is uh, Lung Cancer Awareness Month. If you were to make a statement about the status of where Pennsylvania is, where the Mid-Atlantic, which mm-hmm. your lung association represents the Mid-Atlantic, where the country is with lung cancer, how would you describe it? I would say that lung cancer is the number one cancer killer of men and women. And here in the Commonwealth, we have 10,660 individuals who are diagnosed each year with lung cancer. So it's certainly an issue that we need to be creating awareness about. I think, um, you know, listening to Dr. Moritz, I think one of the most important things to remember is anyone can get lung cancer. So not just smokers. Um, he, he mentioned that earlier. Not just smokers. So everyone needs to be aware of lung cancer and needs to be aware of the risk factors. Um, smoking is certainly one of them. Exposure to secondhand smoke, radon exposure, air pollution, all of the things that um, that are out there. We need to make sure people are, are very much aware of that and know how to take preventative measures. Well, we're going to talk about some of those preventative measures and some of the trends, some of uh, the, the, the new treatments and new screenings that are, are available today. It seems as though we as a society, though, have made progress in the fight against lung cancer. We certainly have made progress. Over the last two years, there's 11 new treatments that are available for individuals that have been approved by FDA, giving hope to a lot more people that, um, you know, cancer is not what it used to be. Um, one of the other new opportunities is a new lung cancer screening tool, a low-dose CT scan. And we know that um, right now there are over 9 million people that are eligible for the lung cancer screening. And if only half of those high-risk individuals were screened, we know that we would save probably close to 15,000 lives. Okay, so how, under normal circumstances, and either one of you can answer both if you want to on this, uh, how, under normal circumstances, is lung cancer screened? Or maybe I should say, not under normal circumstances, but typically, how is it screened? Yeah, I can answer that. So lung cancer screening isn't like all other screenings. Um, it does require, uh, for most providers or most uh, insurances to pay for it, as what's called a shared decision-making visit, meaning you need to discuss it with your primary care provider. Um, or or some other provider. So you can go over the risk and benefits and make sure it's right for you because there, there are some downsides and upsides. Um, but basically, it's anybody that's 55 to 78 that smoked 30 pack years, meaning a pack a day for 30 years or two packs a day for 15 years, um, and quit within the last 15 years. Uh, or somebody that's not symptomatic. If you have some chest pain, shortness of breath, coughing up blood, those kind of things, you need different diagnostic modalities. So a lung cancer screen is a very, very low-dose CAT scan that allows the radiologist to view the lung fields in a much better way than a chest X-ray ever could, which is why it's actually shown a survival benefit over X-ray. And once you get the CAT scan, uh, the report comes out, and and then we grade that in what's called an LRAD score, 1 through 4, and depending on your score decides whether you need some follow-up imaging, whether you need a biopsy, or whether you just need to be screened again in another year, which is the current recommendation. Uh, Deb, is this something that's covered by insurance? It is covered by most most insurances if you are considered high risk. And the American Lung Association, we try to encourage individuals to contact their health care um, uh, insurer just to make sure they have everything in place that needs to be in place for coverage. But um, again, I think, you know, it's really important to remember that the lung cancer screening is recommended for those at high risk. And that is anyone between 55 and 80 years of age who is a current smoker or quit smoking in the last 15 years and smoke the equivalent of what we call a 30-pack year. And that means one pack a day for 30 years, two packs a day for 15 years, or any combination of that. And so, um, again, that's really important for people to have that discussion with their health care provider. 
I also understand, though, in researching this, that uh, uh, you are encouraging more healthcare providers to screen at risk patients that may not be doing it now. Why not? Yeah, so we, that's been a, a big push of our, our lung cancer screening program at, at Pinnacle, UPMC Pinnacle. Um, we've actually incorporated that into electronic medical records, so a best practice alert pops up when somebody's in the primary care provider's office and they are eligible. They have enough pack years documented in, in the record and are a smoker. And that has actually increased our screening um, dramatically. So we went from, um, actually, I announced our screening program in 2011 on your program, so thank you very much for that. <laughs> and hopefully a lot more people have gotten screened since. And so our, our amount of screenings have increased dramatically. There was a few milestones. A, Medicare decided to start paying for it, which was very helpful. Um, but then the Electronic Medical Record Incorporation has been helpful. So this year, we've already screened 800 people. We're on target for about 1,000. And we've already found six uh, individuals with lung cancer that we were able to help. So to those six people, it was a tremendous benefit. Mm. Uh, we have something here that uh, I became aware of, a public service announcement, that a campaign that the American Lung Association is going on called Save by the Scan. I want to play this uh, little 15-second uh, public service announcement and then ask you about it. After 15 years of smoking, Eva Marie quit. There's a new lung cancer screening that could save her life. You stopped smoking. Now start screening. Learn more at savedbythescan.org. And if you could see the video of that, it is a woman climbing a mountain of uh, cigarettes, and uh, it, get, it gets your attention. I have to say, uh, it's not quite like those uh, those PSAs of the, the cancer survivors who are in really bad shape. I mean, those things, are they get attention, but uh, I don't know if they in such a good way. But anyway, that is a powerful PSA. It certainly is. And um, this is a new campaign that has um, been released by the American Lung Association through our Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council, and it's really to raise awareness of the benefits of early detection through lung cancer screening, and we want to drive high-risk individuals to our unlung online lung cancer screening eligibility quiz. So you can go to savebythescan.org and you can take a very quick quiz and it'll determine whether you're at high risk or not. And um, I think uh, it's, it's been very successful so far and uh, we've been really pleased with the, the feedback. But I think it the message really encourages people um, who have quit smoking to take the next step. Um, they're concerned about their health, obviously, because they've quit smoking. So we need them to make sure that they are uh, not considered high risk, or they are considered high risk, and then have that conversation with their physician. Dr. Moritz, the, the, the nation and Pennsylvania has taken a lot of steps in recent years to cut down on places where uh, people can smoke, restaurants, bars, well, not all casinos, but a lot of places have, uh, I mean, it amazes me, I think about this, and I've had this conversation with friends, that we, everyone used to smoke on airplanes. I mean, I can't even picture that nowadays, but on airplanes, uh, sports stadiums, there are designated areas for that. So apparently you would think that we are not getting as much secondhand smoke. Have you, as a physician, have you noticed a decrease in um, the number of people who are diagnosed with cancer screens. Has this had an impact, I guess, is the question I'm asking. Yeah, I think the uh, the impact is tremendous from the overall health of our country. Um, and it's great work by the American Lung Association and all the advocacy and political advocacy work they do to help change some of those laws state by state, nationally. Um, you know, smoking doesn't just cause lung cancer. It causes heart disease. It causes COPD, emphysema. causes other types of cancer as well. So if our country as a whole smoked less, we will all be healthier. And when we've seen that as a trend, which is why there's a, a decrease in lung cancer rates in, in men. Um, and so, yeah, I think that all is fantastic. Plus, when you talk to people that used to smoke, and they go to places and are around a smoker, they don't like it anymore. You want to go out to eat. You want to go somewhere. You don't want secondhand smoke. And so I think all those rules and laws have, have been a huge positive. Um, and, and I see a, a subset of patients that used to be smokers. Many of them still are, are smokers, unfortunately. So I don't, I don't have a good sense of the general population of smoking in my patients. You're listening to Smart Talk on WYTF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 
Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at upmcpinnacle.com. Welcome back to Smart Talk. It is uh, National Lung Cancer Awareness Month during the month of November, and we are talking about lung cancer with Deborah Brown, Executive Vice President of the American Lung Association of the Mid-Atlantic, Dr. Troy Moritz, a cardiothoracic surgeon with UPMC Pinnacle, and a board member of the American Lung Association of Pennsylvania. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a message on WITF. YTF's uh, Facebook page. Also, we, on Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. And coming up a little bit later in the program, Dr. G. Terry Madonna, political analyst with uh, Franklin Marshall College, is going to join us to talk about the yesterday's election results. Again, 1-800-729-7532. Now, we had a question here from Katie in Camp Hill. Wanted to know best practices for detection and rate of lung cancer amongst casual smokers? Yeah, that's a gray area. Um, you know, we have stringent guidelines on who's high risk for lung cancer screening that we've we've mentioned um, previously, and that's, you know, 55 to 80, 30-pack years of smoking, quote, in the last 15, asymptomatic. So you get into the casual smoker, you get into the person who's only been exposed to secondhand smoke. We see patients in our office and review kind of all of your risk factors. And if we kind of deem you to be high risk, we do screen some folks outside of those parameters under a separate protocol. Um, but that person really needs to have a conversation about the risk of the screening because we do find nodules that aren't cancer. And sometimes that put, sets up a cascade of, of follow-up scans, follow-up uh, imaging and occasionally a biopsy. Uh, so you, you really want to focus this type of screening on high-risk individuals. Uh, you talked about the, the, the C-scan that um, is relatively new. How does it work, and what kind of results do you get? You know, we always hear about false positives with uh, certain tests. Talk about that, if you would. So the, the CT scan for lung cancer screening is a very, very low dose. Um, just to give you an idea, the, the standard CAT scan of somebody's chest would be 7 to 10 millisieverts, which is what it's graded in for the radiation dose. Uh, lung cancer screening is about 1.5 to 2. And so the image quality is not quite as good, but you can see the lung fields very clearly. But you can find spots or nodules. That's what we're looking for. And sometimes the appearance of those spots is a little more indicative of something that's suspicious. I, you see a ton of patients in UPMC Pinnacle's pulmonary nodule clinic, and, and the first thing I do is tell patients that probably about 80-90% of the nodules that we see in our community in this area are not lung cancer. There are all kinds of other things from scar to inflammation, infection, hammeratomas, granulomas. There's a lot of things that can show up as a spot on a CAT scan. So I consider one of the, one of the things that I do that's very important is reassurance because people come in and they immediately think that they've got cancer when they have a nodule found, and that's not the case most of the time. It needs to be reviewed, it needs to be evaluated, and then we go over the risk factors and decide which nodules are better served with an upfront biopsy or diagnostic test and which ones are better served with follow-up, uh, meaning a CAT scan maybe in three months or six months uh, down the road. How does lung cancer present itself in a physical way? In a physical way? It's, yeah. uh, lung cancer, as a lot of other cancers, has been deemed silent killers. Um, it often shows up symptomatically when it's an advanced stage. Uh, when it's early stage and we have the best chance of curing you, it's completely asymptomatic. Um, some of the, the things that people show up with that are symptomatic are, are shortness of breath, but that can be from many, many different right. illnesses. A cough, uh, which I currently have a cough, I apologize, uh, but that can be from right, that would work right and in many with other things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, coughing up blood is a little bit more of a, a sinister um, event that, that should lead to some further um, evaluation. Chest pain, things like that. Um, but those are, those are the things that we see symptom-wise. But usually that means it's a little more advanced and spread and invaded something. Okay. What about, go ahead, Deb. And I think that's why it's so important to remember to go to savebythescan.org and take that eligibility quiz yeah. to determine if you're high risk. Because if we are able to get you in and get you screened, 
if you're high risk and we're able to get you in and get screened, you might be able to be diagnosed earlier and then your treatment options are much greater. And hopefully in the long run, uh, you know, that will benefit the patient that is being served. And I think the other thing with the lung cancer screening is it's a very um, simple test. It, you know, the appointment probably lasts, what, maybe a half hour to 45 minutes, but the test itself is really about a minute and it's painless for people. So Not, not invasive or anything like that? No. No. Deb, something I always have to ask when we're talking about, I don't know, I was about to say other forms of cancer, but there are several forms of cancer that seem to get more attention. Breast cancer, for example, during the month of October when it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, you see pink everywhere. Give a lot of credit to um, those organizations and the people who have uh, publicized it and, and uh, promoted the awareness of it. Lung cancer doesn't seem to get the kind of attention that maybe some of those other cancers do. Why not? I think previously um, people used to think of lung cancer as no hope. There was no hope for anyone who had lung cancer. It really was. And I think that that is slowly changing. I think as a result of low-dose CT scanning, I think uh, as a result of awareness that it is the number one cancer killer of men and women, I think we're slowly making progress. Um, We'd like to move a little bit faster probably than we are. But um, the other thing I do want to remind folks is in May, we have something called National Women's Lung Health Week. And we do a turquoise takeover. So we're trying to um, kind of put women's lung health issues, including lung cancer, on a much grander scale and make people more aware of things that they can do to protect themselves um, from various lung diseases, not only lung cancer. But um, I, I just believe that people didn't see hope at the end of the tunnel. And hopefully now they are seeing that. Well, that number that we discussed right off the top of the program, where it has increased in women by 97% since 1978 should get uh, a whole lot of attention right off the bat because that's an eye-opener. Let's take uh, a call from Christy in Lancaster. Christy, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Hi, Deb. Hi, uh, Dr. Moritz. Hello. Um, Thanks for taking my call. Yes, I wanted to um, just uh, give a little bit of insight. So my mom passed away three years ago from lung cancer, and what we found when she was first um, diagnosed was how lonely of a diagnosis it is because there is such a stigma around lung cancer that it's a smoker's disease that people kind of not deserve it but have done it to themselves, which is a stigma that not, that not every cancer um, has to deal with. And so I really appreciate the support um, that I found from our local lung association. And so I wondered if um, your guest today could talk a little bit about how people can support lung cancer patients um, and research locally and get more information kind of about those resources that are available for them. Thank you very much for your call. I'm sorry to hear about uh, your, your mother, but the stigma. Is there a stigma? There absolutely is a stigma. And in fact, um, you know, it's one of the reasons that we're doing a lot of education about um, there are other risk factors other than than, uh, smoking. And I think it's also important to remember, even if you did smoke, it doesn't mean that you don't deserve the treatments that are out there um, to to, um, live. And so um, I think we have been working very hard to remind folks that anyone can get lung cancer as a result of the risk, uh, the, uh, risk factors that were mentioned earlier. But I think, you know, we need families to be encouraging, uh, not judgmental. We need them to be empathetic to, to uh, loved ones or family and friends. We need to have them focus on the health benefits, um, make sure that individuals do know that there are screenings out there. Um, we need to break down bar- barriers. We need to make sure that, you know, we help people. If they need help setting up an appointment, that we do that. If they need help maybe um, getting to and from treatment, that we do that. And just remind people that we care. And I think those are really important things when you're you're talking with someone. But I think the most important thing is to make sure that if they are high risk, that we get them screened and uh, that we get them the health care that they need. No one deserves to have lung cancer. We have a couple questions here from listeners. What do we know about the vaping and lung health? Is it truly helping to cut the number of tobacco smokers? 
Um, I would say no. Um, vaping, you know, it's not regulated, so you can basically, you know, tomorrow go home and in your bathtub create your own vaping product. Um, there's there's a lot of issues. It's it's the science behind it. And one small study that was done um, showed that people quit smoking at the same rate, and this is more e-cigarettes and vaping, but at the same rate that people that did gums and patches and other forms of nicotine replacement. But what's interesting is six months later, the people that did the gums and the patches and stuff had mostly quit that. The people that had done the e-cigarettes were almost all still doing e-cigarettes. So it's still chemical. They're still inhaling. Um, and so it, it, at the end of the day, it's probably better than smoking an actual cigarette. But there still needs to be a lot of work done so that the amount of nicotine and that the products themselves are actually safer and regulated before it can be recommended as a, as a, as a good way to quit smoking. So we don't know a whole lot about it. Uh, uh, it is relatively new. Uh, is there any research out there that uh, talks about the health effects that, that concludes about the health impact? Maybe not with lung cancer, but maybe with some other... Uh, not any uh, large-scale research okay. that you could rely on now. And, and can I just add, I think, you know, through the American Lung Association, we really encourage people to use tried-and-true methods, best-practice methods that have been approved by the FDA. We think that, as Dr. Moritz mentioned, those are the best ways to help people quit smoking. Mm-hmm. As we see more, and this is another uh, email from a listener, as we see more and more legalization of marijuana, does this raise red flags for you in as far as lung health is concerned? What do we know about marijuana and lung health? So interestingly, I went to the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer's um, annual meeting in Colorado, of all places, a couple years ago. And that question was posed to the entire audience of radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, surgeons. Um, and there is no data that anybody could provide there that really implicates marijuana smoking and lung cancer. But part of the reason is, you know, you, you don't smoke a pack of marijuana cigarettes a day like you do cigarettes. So the amount of smoke ingested is dramatically different from one form to the other. But the other thing is it's really hard to study. And so there, it's hard to quantify and follow those patients and get an accurate amount of, of ingestion. Um, and so that's that's one issue. There's no information that says it doesn't, um, but there's no strong information, at least in a large-scale population, that absolutely implicates it. But a lot of the legalized marijuana is in the smoke form anyway. It winds up being in more of the other ingestible ways, which mm-hmm. um, just interesting side note. My guess is uh, you'd get a lot of volunteers if you had people who uh, you wanted to do a clinical study. <laughs> yeah. that, uh, uh, Mark emails, please discuss exposure to secondhand smoke and what are the rights of employees who are exposed to secondhand smoke at the workplace? Well, I, th- I think um, secondhand smoke exposure is very similar and can be um, associated with a variety of, of lung disease issues. Um, exposure is is not something that we uh, want individuals to be um, breathing in every day. Um, as far as workplaces, most workplaces are 100% smoke-free. However, as you mentioned early on in the program, there are some locations, you know, casinos, 50% of the floor is still um, smoke smoking. Um, we know that there are some restaurants and bars that have very specific license here in Pennsylvania that permit smoking. So um, it's really important. There are several pieces of legislation that are out there to prohibit smoking anywhere indoors. And so um, we need to make sure that we protect everyone, everyone's ability to breathe clean indoor air. And so um, right now we're working on that. Dr. Moritz, uh, what effect, and this is another uh, listener question, what effect do filters have on cigarettes? Do they contribute to chemicals being inhaled? Um, the filter's in place to take up some of this stuff, but it, I mean, people have been smoking filtered cigarettes for eons, and it really hasn't changed the lung cancer rate. So, I mean, the filter's a negligible issue when it comes to smoking and helping. Um, it doesn't advocate smoking in any way, shape, or form. The filter's not big enough and strong enough, trust me. You know, and this is just personal observations, but uh, it's it's difficult, even though we know people who are at risk and they're to be screened, uh, but sometimes it's difficult to know who can get lung cancer and who doesn't. Just personal um, stories. My father smoked, and he was a three-pack-a-day smoker for years, non-filter, Pall Mall, Chesterfield, you know, back in the 60s and all that. Um, 
he was one of the first people I saw with a nicotine patch, and he stopped like cold turkey, which I couldn't believe. But uh, he, he, you know, was screened for lung cancer, never had a problem with, with his lungs. Now, yeah, he coughed and that sort of thing, but didn't have lung cancer. Then I had a friend, a very good friend, who died of lung cancer at the age of 31, who never smoked, was an athlete. Just wondered, you know, where that came from. Yeah, and that's kind of revert back to the question you asked earlier about uh, genetics. Um, and, and obviously there's, you know, in our genes we have devices that help turn off and turn on the regulation and growth of genes. And, and sometimes there's defects in those that, that can lead to early lung cancers like that. Um, and some people are just more resilient and they don't make folks like your father anymore. Uh, uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, we were talking about screening a little bit earlier. Screening's not recommended for everyone, though, is it? It is not recommended for everyone. It's really only for those individuals who are at high risk. And again, they can go to SaveByTheScan.org and take the eligibility quiz or speak to their doctor about their risk. Mm. You know, we talked about uh, how lung cancer presents itself, some of the symptoms. Uh, what about treatments? How are, I mean, we want people to prevent the disease. We want them to get screened. But once they've been diagnosed, how are they treated? Yeah, so that's... You know, we have so many options in the last decade that we didn't have before. Um, if you are early stage, small cancer, stage one, 70, 90% survival five years if um, we can find it early and treat it early. And not only finding it, but actually treating it early is a big part of that equation. We we can employ, you know, number one recommendation if you'll tolerate it is surgery. Uh, surgical resection is, is your best chance for long-term survival and lowest chance for recurrence. What we do mostly now is robotic resections or minimally invasive resections, so we can get the job done with you know less invasiveness and, and quicker recovery. But we also have a lot of other tools in our arsenal. We have very, very focused radiation now that we didn't have in the past, and that allows us to treat just the tumor with a lot less collateral damage to other surrounding structures. And you know, you're treating a cancer in the chest. There's a lot of important structures in there. And then we also have some chemotherapies that are new and novel, and we have targeted therapies for lung cancer now. So we can treat you based on your particular cancer with a higher success rate and less toxicity on the side. We're going to actually have a program at the Camp Hill Giant next week, Tuesday evening at 7. There will be a radiation oncologist, Dr. David Wexberg, uh, a medical oncologist, Dr. Rodney Jamil, and myself um, talking about these exact issues, sort of what's new in lung cancer. I hope this isn't a dumb question, but uh, we often hear about cancers spreading to other organs. Um, most often, you, you know, it, it starts one place and then has spread to the, the, the lungs. What about the other way around? Does uh, someone who is diagnosed with lung cancer or does it, I mean, does it spread to uh, other organs or do you catch it in time because it will start showing some symptoms? Yeah, the answer question is both. Um, we want to, as Deb has mentioned, we want to find it early. We want to find asymptomatic patients who are high risk. Find that one spot in your lung that turns out to be a lung cancer that we can fix. Um, as a thoracic surgeon, that's what gives me the greatest joy is, is curative lung resection. But it can spread. It can not only spread to other lobes of your lung, meaning different parts. It can spread to the lymph nodes in your chest, and it can spread to other organs. The, the classic places that lung cancer likes to spread to is your brain, your bones, your adrenal glands, and your liver. The first place it usually goes is your lymph nodes, though. And so that dictates your stage. And when I talk about early stage lung cancer, that means it has not spread to anywhere except locally. Um, and then once it gets into the lymph nodes in the middle of your chest or distant lymph nodes or distant organs, it's called, that's advanced. And, and the cure rate drops off dramatically when that happens. You know, I, I don't want to leave listeners feeling pessimistic or anything like that. But, uh, you know, we, as you have said, Deb, uh, lung cancer is one of the most deadly uh, forms of, of, of cancer out there. Uh, I, you know, some of the things that we've talked about today with prevention, screening, you know, watching your health, stop smoking, some of those other risk factors. But at the same time, there still are a lot of people that this will kill them. Absolutely. And, um, you know, our job is to keep creating awareness that it is the number one cancer killer of men and women. Um, you know, if they are at all uh, have any of those um, associated with any of those risk factors, secondhand smoke exposure, radon exposure, air pollution, um, any of those things, again, have healthy conversations with their doctor about their smoking behavior. One of the things that we found is, you know, when some people who quit smoking, when they go in to talk to their doctor, they say, have you 
have you um, or are you a smoker? And the person will say no. But then the conversation doesn't go further. It doesn't say, well, were you a smoker? So I think we need to have healthy, truthful conversations with our physicians to determine if we are at risk. And if we are at risk, then what what are the next steps? You touched on this earlier, but what works best to try to stop smoking? I think what works best is to make sure that the person is in a behavior change type program and use the particular treatments that are out there. Dr. Um, Moritz mentioned a couple of them, you know, nicotine replacement type therapies. Um, There's also medications out there. There are seven approved uh, medications by uh, FDA. And use those medications along with a behavior change approach. And we know that the success for that person is much greater. Um, People quit, though, in all different manners. (laughs) Mm. Let's take a phone call from Bob in Lancaster. Bob, you're on the air. Hello, how are you today? I'm doing well. Um, Yeah, I just wanted to thank you guys for uh, doing this presentation today. Um, I'm a lung cancer survivor myself. Um, I was operated on about three and a half years ago. I'm cancer-free today. And it's all because I was screened and found it early. I think that's the key to it um, more than anything else uh, because... You know, an adenocarcinoma, if you, if you let it escape from your lung, is uh, devastating. Well, Bob, congratulations on being cancer-free, and I'm glad that uh, I'm sure everyone agrees here that uh, they are able to catch it and, and, uh, and cure you. Thank you very much for calling in. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. And, you know, a, a testimonial like that probably has more impact than anything that we could say, you know? Absolutely. That's congratulations to Bob because that is pretty significant. Yeah, and as a young thoracic surgeon, I was often frustrated by the thing that we talked about earlier. You know, breast cancer gets a lot of attention in October, a lot of pink everywhere, and then November rolls around, and Lung Cancer Awareness Month is white or pearl. And and there's you know used to not be a lot of survivors, and so there wasn't advocates, there wasn't people out there that were talking about it um, and and promoting it and helping raise funds and awareness and all the things that are critical. And so guys like Bob are are fantastic. Like, please keep telling everybody that story. Uh, I I applaud you um, because it it needs to be known. It needs to be out there. One final question, and I hesitate to get into politics, uh, but, Deb, uh, the state budget, uh, apparently Pennsylvania is going to have a state budget here pretty soon. And one of the major aspects of that state budget is borrowing from the tobacco settlement funds that in Pennsylvania goes to uh, fund health programs, and, uh, you know, specifically one of the the programs is smoking cessation. I know that uh, the Lung Association was that, you know, you opposed that right off the bat. Correct. Does that put smoking cessation problem, or excuse me, programs in any kind of danger? Well, this year there appears to be some funding available for prevention and cessation programs, but in the future uh, years, we are not sure what the, what will happen, and very concerned about that. Um, you know, one of the things that we talked about here today is how smoking contributes to a variety of diseases, not just lung cancer, and um, I think that if we are not encouraging and educating our young people about never starting smoking, uh, we may see the smoking rate here in Pennsylvania dramatically increase, um, and the need for cessation services will not be able to meet those increases because of the lack of funding. So we are very concerned about that uh, uh, decrease or lack of funding and are hopeful that the legislature will um, honor their word and make sure that there are prevention and cessation dollars in the coming years. Deb Brown is the Executive Vice President of the American Lung Association of the Mid-Atlantic. Dr. Troy Moritz is a cardiothoracic surgeon with UPMC Pinnacle and a board member of the American Lung Association of Pennsylvania. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank Thank you you. for having us. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Yesterday's election results are being described as a major victory for Democrats across the country. What's behind the Democrats' wins, and does it have anything to do with President Donald Trump a year after his election win? Joining us is Dr. G. Terry Madonna, political analyst and pollster at Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster. Dr. Madonna, welcome to the program. 
Good morning, Scott. And the answer is yes and yes. Okay, Here's well, there, there we go. There, that's our starting point. Give me some. Uh, give me a little more background of why you think that there was a Trump effect yesterday. Yeah. All right. Well, let's start with the fact that this is not unusual in you know elections after a first president's election, and that will probably hold true for the midterm next year, where there's a kind of voters uh, a buyer's remorse. The uh, the party that lost gets more energized, tends to turn out. But this year, we saw in the nation where obviously New Jersey, you would expect the Democrat to win in New Jersey. Christie, Chris Christie, the current governor, was the exception in a very blue state. But then you go down and you look at what Ralph uh, Northup did, where he won very convincingly over Ed Gillespie. And what you saw there was what we saw in Pennsylvania, a much larger turnout in in the suburbs outside of Washington, D.C., that propelled Northup to a victory. And in our state, uh, some pretty historic occurrences down in the Philadelphia suburbs and statewide where Democrats turned out proportionately more than Republicans, which except for the state Supreme Court election, you know, which allowed them to win many contests that uh, were somewhat surprising. I'll give you one example. For the first time in history, Democrats now hold a seat seats on the Delaware County Council. They won seats in the county in Bucks County, county elections. Now, they've done that before, but they picked up additional seats there. In my county, Lancaster County, in the suburban township in which I live, the Democrats won control of the school board and the township commissioner's post. And I think that could be a first time in history. So a lot of that, quite frankly, was motivated by, you know, the antipathy towards Trump, by the enthusiasm that Democrats have to, you know, try to undo what the voters did in 2000. And uh, 16. Let me dig down on that a little bit more. I mean, Virginia and New Jersey, looking at those two states individually, Chris Christie, as you said, was an exception in a blue state, also was very unpopular at this point in his administration. So it's not a real surprise a Democrat would win there. Virginia, the polls were showing that those two were pretty close. But uh, Virginia, as a lot of your colleagues have pointed out, voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016, voted Obama twice. Uh, So Democrats did pretty well. Uh, So is it a real surprise that Democrats would win those two states' gubernatorial races? No, no. I mean, it's not a big surprise. I was surprised that whatever the final vote will be, nine or ten points, that's a pretty substantial victory when I think the polls on average showed it to be closer. But having said that, uh, what struck me as important was that the turnout in the Philly, in the suburbs, and here's what we're looking at. Right now, elections in many states are about urban and suburban votes versus rural and small town votes. You and I have talked about that before. And so what transpires, you know, relative to those two parts of our country really make a difference. And what happened in our state and what happened in Virginia especially was the the higher turnout in suburban parts where they voted Democratic. That's the point I'm, I'm trying to make. Uh, and whether that holds true for next year or not remains to be seen, but that could be pivotal in which party wins the midterm elections next year. You know, I'm not discounting your point about Virginia. Oh, no, no. Uh, And I'm not arguing with you. No, I'm not arguing with you either. I'm just I'm just pointing out some things, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of people have talked about uh, demographic changes over the last few years. Let's face it. uh, There hasn't been a whole lot of demographic change from this election to one last year. But 
one of the, the and I want to ask you if it's demographics or just a change in philosophy in the Philadelphia suburbs, as you know and have pointed out many times, that used to be a solid Republican area in those counties right. surrounding Philadelphia. Now, not conservative Republican, more moderate Republican, but in recent elections right. now, they have gone for Democratic candidates. Does that have to, anything to do with demographics or more political philosophy? Well, I think uh, probably a little bit of both. But at this point, three of the four counties, Bucks, Montgomery and Delaware, have Democratic voter registration edges, which they didn't have a decade ago. They were Republican a decade ago. So you are having Republicans becoming Democrats. You have new voters that are moving into those counties, more likely to be Democrats than Republicans with the Republicans being part of what we could call sort of the old guard Republicans. Republicans in the Philly suburbs are tend to be more moderate in their political persuasions. I'm not saying there aren't conservatives, you know, hard rock conservatives there. But overall, when you look statewide, they tend to be on the moderate, the conservative side. And the in-migrants in particular are more likely to be Democrats. Some of them, of course, transplants from the city of Philadelphia that moved out into the burbs. That is particularly true for uh, major parts of Delaware County. So overall, it's a combination of both of those points you made. But I would say more a change in political uh, philosophy as the as the Democratic as the Republican Party has become more and more populist and conservative. That's been at odds with the uh, uh, Republican voters in those counties. Terry, we made some history in Pennsylvania yesterday. Uh, a woman won, won every open statewide seat. Uh, yeah. Re- Republican Sally Mundy right. was the lone exception. Uh, she beat uh, Democrat Dwayne Woodruff for a spot on uh, the uh, Supreme Court, state Supreme Court. Uh, there were four empty Superior Court seats. They went to Democrats right. Maria McLaughlin, Debbie Kunzelman, and Carolyn Nichols. Republican Mary Murray narrowly beat out fellow Republican Craig Stedman, who is the district Stedman, attorney right. in uh, York County, or excuse me, in Lancaster County. And right. two seats were open on Commonwealth Court. They went to Republican Christine Fasano Cannon and Democrat Ellen Seisler. So there's a message there. And right? what is that <laughs> message? Well, look. Unlike and you, you're you're an authority on Pennsylvania politics. I mean, you spend a lot of time covering the Pennsylvania legislature. You know how tough and brutal that process is to get into the legislature. And let's be honest, it's been historically an old boys network. That is not true where the court elections are concerned. By nature of how they they get through the the bar associations review the the kind of support that they get. The fact that, and remember that women. I don't know if they constitute an absolute majority in the law schools of our country, but it's close if they're not there already. And many of the folks who went on to these appeals court elections are graduates of Pennsylvania law schools, practice law very prominently. I just think that in the legal profession, it's a lot easier to get where they are than in the political profession where you've got to go through all the hurdles and all of the challenges Dealing, dealing with, uh, you know, a lot more competition from, so to speak, the old boys. I think that has uh, uh, that has a lot to do uh, do with it. The culture in our state, particularly when it comes to political offices, and I'll say that in reference to those seeking governmental offices, but through a markedly political process, as running for the state house or the senate or running for. Uh, now, the, the other thing that's sort of interesting is that we used to, that women hold a disproportionate number of seats on school boards, as you know. Mm-hmm. And that's another area where it tends to be, quote, less political, end quote. So I think it's probably a combination of those factors. And and uh, and that's a great observation that you made and one that I think is going to be increasingly picked up by observers. Well, I wonder whether that translates to more women running for 
state legislature, for example. Yes, Pennsylvania has one of uh, the uh, most disproportionate amount of men compared to women in in the legislature. And one of the factors we've heard there is, you know, besides what you just listed, is that not enough women run. I wonder if a result like that yesterday encourages more women to actually run. Oh, I think it will. I mean, I think Look, there is change taking place in the legislature. I forget the, where, where we are. We're something like the fourth lowest in the country, or we're 45th, I think, in terms of women, something along those lines. I don't have that information in front of me. But the point is that the more success that women have at all levels, the more likely they are to run. I mean, for the legislature, remember that for many years, it was not a full time. It, it, it was, in a sense, a full-time job. The pay was pretty good. The pension was is good. The health care is good. And so men, for decades, for centuries, I should say, were the leading breadwinners. Therefore, they pushed into those jobs. Uh, now, that's all. also the, the economics of it are changing a good bit. And I think we will see more women run, just as, as you point out. They've had such success in these appeals court elections. Terry, we only have a minute or so left. I want to thank you for being with us today. The, the ballot question yesterday, the referendum yeah. about uh, property taxes, very confusing question, but uh, it, it, it apparently won. So in 60 yes. seconds or less, what does that mean? Well, it means that the Pennsylvania legislature has now the, the op. They don't, you can't force the legislature to do it, but it says – The referendum says to the legislature, go ahead, write a language that will allow school districts to completely eliminate the property tax altogether or up to completely eliminate. Now it's 50 percent. I won't get into this, the median value. We won't go there. So translation, the legislature could give school districts the opportunity to eliminate up to 100 percent of their property taxes. But here's the but. They'd have to come up with a different tax or a series of taxes to make up for the loss of 12 to 13 billion dollars in property tax revenue. Mm. And boy, I say that with uh, tongue in cheek. Hey, Terry, I'm out of time. Go ahead. Dr. G. Terry Madonna, political analyst and pollster at Franklin and Marshall. Terry, thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Tomorrow, a Smart Talk road trip at the Central Pennsylvania Food Bank. You still can go to WITF.org slash events and RSVP if you'd like to attend. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for over 50 clinical trials. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart.